Welcome to the latest episode of the Brushbuilders Union podcast. I'm your host and general president of the Brushbuilders Union, Simon Berman. This month, I am joined by my old friend and former co-worker, Ron Cruzy, studio director at Privateer Press. Ron, how are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Right on, man. Thanks for talking to me. I've always speak to you for, for many, many years, actually, about a variety of stuff, so I'm excited to have you on. All right. Just for a little bit of like who you are and what you're about, you know, I think, as I mentioned, you're currently the, you're the studio director at Privateer Press. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, studio director. I started off as a, a studio painter like a million years ago. Then I uh, did some power plays and became the studio director. And that's where I've been ever since. Well, that it, like I used to tell people that it's like herding cats, right? Because you're just hurting all these artists and you're trying to get everything done and in the nick of uh-huh. time and stuff but lately it's feeling more like i'm working with a lot of seasoned veterans and, and it's nice actually so what i do in a nutshell is like you know the boss you know wilson just hands me a concept art and it's my job to hand him back a a mass producible miniature of the concept art that's what it is in a nutshell and so much of it's really a uh, continuity and there's a lot of administration involved and a lot of uh, judging of art and correcting people, a lot of numbers, a lot of pacing around the house, arguing with myself about projects, you know, then coming to a conclusion. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, sure. It's actually a pretty, it's actually a pretty cool job. That's cool. So you kind of oversee the, the, the marriage between concept art and the sculptors yes. and probably the painters yeah, too. It's, is that right? uh, I think the sculpting aspect of it um, is the main part of it. Definitely when we, when the studio was all together, uh, I did bring in painters and I'm not going to say so much as I trained them as I just pushed them to become great painters. And um, then the train makers, but the train makers, they're always, they always kind of come in and they kind of got their own, they always kind of paddle their own canoe, if you know what I mean. So I just kind of give them a safe space to, to work in. That's cool. But uh, yeah, so I mean, so you work on War Machine, Horrors, presumably Monster Apocalypse, yeah. all that stuff? Everything. Everything that's come out of Privateer Press, I've had my hands or fingers in it somehow. Mostly just the miniatures, though. But uh, Monster Apocalypse, yeah, that was, uh, I was definitely there from sure. the very beginning on that one. That one, that one changed me as a person. I remember doing uh, back in the first edition. Yeah, back in the first edition, Monpoc. Like, I had to paint all the the paint masters that uh, the factories in China would reproduce, and I logged. I'm sure I logged thousands of hours on the airbrush doing that work, and that's where I I kind of had my airbrush crucible doing that project. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, really? But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, it's interesting your job is and all the cool stuff and you know, the fact that we work together. What I actually wanted to talk to you about this week uh, or this episode is about um, what goes into making a good looking and playable wargaming table. And uh, you're, my, you're my guest of choice for this because over the past few years, you've been running some big sort of event games um, in various yeah. historical or sort of weird corners of wargaming. Like um, you played that, that uh, revolutionary war game and then more recently that, 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 uh, that game on the moon with the aliens, uh, yeah. which is one of the most fun I've yeah. ever had in 15 millimeter. Yeah. Moon um, grunt. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Moon yeah. grunt. Yeah. <laughs> what a great name for a game. Right. It, it, it kind of names itself, right? Moon grunt. So yeah. So 
I've been a miniature war gamer my, my, since I've been uh, a little pup, right? Because I remember my older brother played D&D and had little figurines back at the beginning. And um, I think somewhere in like early grade school, I talked my mom into buying me a, a set of like Ralph Partha adventurers and a, and a set of paints. And I remember she bought them all for me and I spent, Spent the entire evening. I painted the whole set in one sitting. I still have them, and I kinda, I haven't really stopped since then, right? So for decades, painting models like it was before the internet, and it was, you know, all I really had to go off of was some like little fold-out pamphlet that came with like, in those early box sets, and um, so learning it was all self-taught and like there was nobody else out there that I knew that painted. So I just spent years of just trying uh, to, to, to be better without having any resources. Then occasionally I'd meet somebody who was better than me and I would like kind of, kind of jump the plateau, right? I'd just kind of launch into the next level. And then, you know, as the years went by, I started meeting more and more people, sure. uh, magazines. You start seeing painted models in magazines and you're all like, oh, my gosh, am I ever going to paint that good? You know, and uh, and then I think eventually I started meeting like actual, you know, really good painters in person. And, and that's when they started being like, yeah, there's this thing called the Internet. You should check it out. Right. And it's just like, oh, really? You know. And or they would turn me on to some new yeah right yeah. they'd turn me on to some new brush or something and um, eventually eventually it got me into the studio uh, as a freelance painter and then then I worked for for um, for privateer for a while what was nice about that is it taught me how to paint faster and that's what happens to a lot of studio painters is they get good then they get fast and that's one of the things that allowed me to finally start getting uh, armies painted was I finally got faster. And after that happened, also, like, I, I had to fight burnout, right? Because you go to work and you're painting 32, 35-millimeter scale miniatures all day. When I went home, I had to work on other things. So I worked on, like, vehicles and other scales and science fiction stuff and terrain, you know, just to, like, keep myself from... Uh, burning out so i you know i was painting 12 16 hours a day uh, yeah. nowadays i always try to get between like 45 minutes to three hours in every day every night and sometimes when you're late at night when you're tired you just kind of like that's when you that's when i paint like the rank and file stuff where you don't you're not thinking too much you're just just getting layers on you know getting getting that brush time in but uh but i Absolutely. guess i guess we're talking about about these gains I've started to run recently. So I guess I'm kind of leading up to that. So I think a lot of this is kind of like kind of chasing childhood a little bit, right? Because when you're younger, you would play like one type of game or only one game system over and over so much that you had it memorized and you would play with your family, mm-hmm. your friends, and you would start making your own scenarios, making your own games because you got everything memorized so you can just start kind of creating whatever you want out of it. And those were in memory. Those were some of my funnest games. So I remember me and my little cousin, we would start some game Friday night back when you're like middle school and we would play to like 
same game we'd play it for until like Sunday evening. And it always, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It always like boil down to like these like eclectic twenty models fighting each other on the table. So we started doing. We started just being like, let's just have these small tables and get this like eclectic group of figures and just duke it out. So we started having these like little micro games, and that was a lot of fun, right? Then, as you get older, I got in. You know, I got into like the more the 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 competitive tournament circuit, and that was fun for a while. But the magic kind of killed the magic for me, like killed the story. Hobby was still there, but it killed the story, killed a lot of things that I loved about miniature wargaming. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I started more and more friends were were experimenting with uh, writing their own rules or playing whatever they wanted to play. Not what was kind of popular. So, that was starting to happen that I started going to uh, actually started going to wargaming conventions. I feel a lot later in my life than, than maybe a lot of my other peers would have gone to, but started going to wargaming conventions and I started playing in a lot of people's games. And these are like more of the historical conventions where we still get science fiction and fantasy for sure, but you get people showing up and they pulled out all the stops to make this, display game that people can join in and have fun and i just started taking notes about what worked and what didn't work you know like started realizing that if you're going to be running a a game at a convention like your rules have got to be real simple or as a game master you better know your game inside and out to the point where you you act like the computer like the players shouldn't have to think about number crunching and math. You do that for them. Or you have a simple, fun set of rules. So I learned a lot about what not to do. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sure we've all had the experience where you go and play a game and it's like hour two and you, you haven't even had a chance to roll dice yet. You know, those kinds of experiences where you're just like, okay, don't everyone let anyone do that. Yeah. <laughs> Usually at historical conventions, yeah. to be fair. So when I started uh running my own games uh using you know produced rules i started paying attention to what the players were doing and i i thought to myself like okay i want to put a show on for four to six people i, I want to show up and put a show on for them. i'm an entertainer right and i noticed uh, people would like they'd get their army and they would kind of just put it in front of them and then they would just kind of push it forward in front of the right in front of the guy in front of it across the table from him. Right. They just push it forward. And I was just like, that's ah, kind of, that's kind of boring. So we played that, uh, American revolutionary war game that I ran for, for you guys a couple years back. Like, and, and I put a lot of time in that and I find myself doing things like you, you kind of, without letting anyone know you're doing it when you're, building this scenario you're pre-measuring everything on the table like you're starting everything exactly x amount of inches away so if they move this far then they'll be able to get one shot at long range and if they move this far then they'll be able to get one shot at short range before they can charge an attack like everything's just mathematically set up and then i made it so like every character has like a story that they have like a story arc they have to uh complete as like a minor objective and it against or with the person across of them across from them right but like every player who's playing the person on their right or left their story's also linked 
and in order to win the game, they kind of have to help out their buddy, their neighbor, but they have to defeat the person across from them. But they're like a small piece of a big, bigger puzzle, which is the entire game flow, right? And so a little esoteric, but I was trying to incorporate that into these six-player group games, and it worked really well. I've had a couple failures, but that one worked really well. So can I... Uh... Yeah. I was hoping maybe we could pause a minute to kind of talk about that game in particular because that that game actually um, it, it it's been a big influence on me and how I approach gaming as well. But I, I kind of maybe set the, set the scene about it for a little bit. So that that was um, a six player yeah. game, wasn't it? And uh, you were using uh, the muskets and tomahawks rule, and it, it was a Revolutionary War or American Revolutionary War, I should say, to be yeah. specific. Um, in uh, twenty yeah yeah, it was right? the first edition of muskets and tomahawks, which w- works which plays really well for multiplayer. Yeah. So when you were what getting down to like the very basis of it, what made you, you woke up one day and said, I want to run a muskets and tomahawks game for some friends. Was, was that, was that the impetus? Was there a specific scenario or was it the, was well, it the period that attracted you? What, 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 what got you started doing that? Well, you know what? So, you know, what happened, you know, what happened was like me and a few buddies, we were playing different games you know how you get together with your friends and you're like, we're playing this game this week. And you're like, oh my gosh, okay. Then you guys play it for two weeks. Then, and then you change games and play that for two weeks. Well, we were playing, we were choosing these games and we were just painting all the models. Yeah, of course. And we were just driving them into the ground. We were playing them 10, 15 times in a row. And we were just burning ourselves out of these games. Next, burn ourselves out. Next, and we were just doing that. And I remember at one point, we're playing Muskets Tomahawks. And my friend was all like, you know what? I like this game. Let's not burn it out. So since then, we've, we play it every once in a while. And it's still a good game because of that, right? Uh, I, I just like the game. It, it, it flows really well. And um, it's fun. It's simple. It's got, I like it a it's lot, It's got too. great flow. A flow is really important for me. It lends itself for hobby, play, and, it tell, and the main thing is it tells a really good story. Every time I play it, it tells a great story. And that's that's what really captured me was that the way that the game is built great still great storytelling game so that's one of the reasons i use it i did find yeah I, just to, to interject sure. if i could you know speaking about narrative in that game you know it's very remember we had the battle of bear swamp do you remember that in that game where uh the random events a bear spawned yeah. in the woods where uh, you know our, our natives and the, uh, the yeah, colonials were that. fighting and like that you know he just he just he just wrecked a bunch of people's faces in the middle of it, but it, it, it was such a great little like side story in the bigger version of you know us trying yeah. to rescue the hostages um the colonial the, the, the colonial militia had yeah. the farmhouse but it, it was such a great story and i, I always think yeah, about it's that because like everyone gets their character like their main character then you roll on this huge grand story generation chart and like everyone's got like this side quest and sometimes it's like love affairs you know which those are always fun because a lot of times you get like you have like full-on like uh, full on romances play out on the table while there's a while there's a battle going out, right? And it's always fun. Yeah. And so I yeah I end up getting a hold of like this little like old book that was probably written in the seventies, and it was actually American Revolutionary War uh, skirmishes. And so I was just flipping through it, and that's what I've been. I, I just found an actual battle, and then I just slightly modified it a little bit to uh, suit suit my needs. And there you go. Play tested it a handful of times, and and every time I've run it for people, it's just it's been a it's been a big hit. 
What really impressed me about that game, though, and part, one of the biggest I want to talk to you about, was how good the table uh, yeah. looked while remaining playable. And I think there's a real art to that because, you know, you're, you're, there's a lot of tricks you do as far as like, you know, you're putting foam under the table for your trees. I'd love you to tell us about all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the table itself was such an immense part of the game. And it, was, it wasn't just this sort of space where we had to have a couple of pieces of terrain that almost feel like they're in the yeah. way of the game. You know, everything on the table felt like it mattered and helped with the immersion, but didn't get in the way of gameplay. And I was wondering, you know, what are some tricks and, and tips you might have to building a table like that that looks great and feels great, but is also very right. playable? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to actually think what it was. So, like, having buildings that are big enough where you can take the roofs off and put models in, that was a big one. Like, there's no furniture in the buildings. So, you can, so it's actually playable, right? That was one of them. Uh so like how I do my tables now is because they have to be mobile. So I got to be able to like break them down, move them and set them up quickly is I lay down like that kind of foam that you'll like that gym gymnasium foam, those little tiles you put down, I'll put those down. Then I'll roll out either like some kind yeah. of like painted felt, like a, like a, like a wool felt, like a real nice green felt, not like that shamrock green or that, ugly uh forest screen that shows up sometimes but like it, it could be a printed mat too right or or it could be a, a caulk mat that's actually decorated with static grass anyways i lay that on top and then all of like my bushes and my trees and everything i actually have them mounted on little tiny pins like little needles so i just poke them into the terrain and so i can use really nice high-end handmade trees and I can make forest. And then one of the things I do is I use um, the uh, like the the lichen, this bag of loose lichen, and I actually would build I build like the borders around the forest, so people can then move the trees if they need to, but the forest is still denotated, right? So that's a trick. Like it's important to make sure all your terrain is built on something that doesn't raise itself off the table too much and cause models to tip over so i tend to use a lot of like plastic card as my base material because it's because it doesn't warp and you can it actually can withstand a lot of weight and a lot of bending and wear and tear without it being too thick so i use a lot of that um but i just try not to have anything on the table that's going to cause problems with being able to easily knock knocked over or get in the way. I think so much train is killed by just these giant, massive, thick bases. I think that kills half the terrain people put on tables. Why is that? Because have, have you have you seen have you remember those games where you played in games where like the people put the terrain down the table and everyone just avoids the terrain because your models can't actually like cannot actually um, interact with it. Because it's like this, this giant, like, yeah, it's it's almost like a big lump on the table, and you actually can't put a model on it without it falling over. So what it turns into just turns into this just just useless piece of terrain that it doesn't do anything. It just it's just it's this block line the site, right? It's kind of like when you do destroy buildings and you have a lot of rubble. It looks cool, it looks realistic, but you can't put models in there. Most of the time, you can't put models in there. So, whatever you do, you got to make sure when you build your train that your figures can actually interact with it and move through it and be on it for it to work properly, right? No, that makes total sense. So, 
Um, aside from that, you know, are there any like little things you can do to really just sort of dress up a terrain as far as like scattered terrain or things that add visual yeah, interest so to the table? Yeah, so a couple, a couple of like things that. I always do since we're talking about you know American War Revolutionary Wars, I'll do things like I have like uh, you know bushes like decorative bushes with flowers on them. I'll have wood piles. I'll have like you know that that little that little wagon over there you stick up next next to the building you might have uh an animal or two around so and one thing that i really think that always spices up a table is having a few bags of like just pre-mixed clump foliage and like small little like crumbly foliage like uh like like the woodland scenics you know, like like the clump like the God, what's it called like Trying to look for it. Look for it right now. Clump foliage, right? The stuff, the stuff yeah, you put on like trees. Yeah, coarse turf. Like that's another one, right? Where you just kind of sprinkle it around the table. Yeah, it's almost like it's like, it's like you're putting spices on the dish. You know, like the parsley and the salt and pepper. You like you sprinkle it around. Then, oh, then you get like the earth texture, and then you like you sprinkle and make like little trails from the road to the front of like the house's door. Like that stuff, like you'd be surprised how that little bit of effort can make a table look twice as good. No, I mean, when I saw you doing that, it, it blew my mind because, you know, it's such a simple thing you can do, but I, I'd never seen anybody do it before. And it, it was, it was, it was ingenious, um, but it really, it really, you know, it, it really tied the room together, so to you're speak. Done playing the game, it's like, you can just kind of get all the foliage and try to get it back into the little container. But if you don't, it's just like, what, what's like, what, 45 cents, two bucks. That's worth it. You know, for sure. And uh, you, as I remember, you you also pinned all of your trees, yeah, didn't you? I I have a lot of trees. Like I have bins, like big, like those big sliding under the bed bins. I got stacks of those things full of trees, uh, in different scales and different, you know, like bioregions. I got one bin is full of nothing but like jungle. And I got I got bins full of nothing but like six millimeter forests and 15 millimeter forest and like big, large, huge trees that are for like, you know, your standard 32 millimeter scale figures and stuff. Yeah. So, and a lot of them are on pins. Some of them are on bases. And a lot of times it just depends on what kind of game I'm playing. Like I'm playing like some kind of six millimeter game that like, you know, I'll have forests on bases. I'm not pinning those things individually. But uh, what's nice about having trees trees on pins is sure. you, you can pin those things into like winter terrain. You can pin them into uh, the desert. You can pin them into green tables and it works, right? So that makes them a little more universal where, you know, if you were to. Right. And, and of course, the trick is you've got that foam underneath your, uh-huh. your cloth, right? Also, you can you can have like slopes, hills and mountains and you can actually pin your trees into the sides of the hills and mountains and actually have them go in the correct direction, not sticking out sideways. So, and they don't knock over. Like when you hit them with your hand, yeah. they don't like topple over. Right. And I mean, for right now, like right now I, I got this, right. I got a batch of 70 trees I'm working right now and they're, they're going to be uh 15 millimeter orchard trees. Right. So they're on pins so I can sit there and put them in rows and make like a proper, you know, night, you know, Apple orchards, apple orchards in Normandy, 
right? But they're all in pins, so I can just unplug them all, then I can just use them. I can make a force out of them the next game. You know, if I'm playing in North Africa, I could do like a little force with them. Yeah, it gives you a lot of versatility. Very cool. Um, So, and again, you mentioned you you like like buildings that are sort of, you can take the tops off of and put the miniatures inside. Um, Is that, that's a lot of MDF terrain? Yeah, I mean, that's some of the terrain. I use MDF, uh, some scratch built. I do find there's still some people out there that make really good resin terrain. But to be honest, like printing technology is getting pretty good right now, especially for terrain like big buildings. So, you know, there's there's a lot of options out there. But yeah, you really got to be able to take the roof off at least one level, right? I mean, arguably it's a little tedious, but... Right, because... That turns it from just being an obstacle into playable yeah, terrain, yeah. I've, right? I've, I've found myself like uh, b- building like kind of like little guides into the different levels of a building. So when you pull it apart, it actually goes together easier and kind of goes together faster. It's you know, it's like any, anything you can do. That if you can, if a player is playing with miniatures in a the building, they should be able to access one or multiple levels of the building and be able to reassemble it in a couple of seconds, right? Because that's a lot of lost time. And when you get six players around a table playing a game, it's like you're at that point yeah. you're trying to shave off seconds of, of like muscle movement just to keep the game flowing and, and people having fun and, and doing things, right? So I do a lot of things to kind of speed that up. So because I, I, I say that because I, I used to work in a professional kitchen. So it's like I remember that that was all seconds. Everything you do is to – shave one or two seconds off of something right so some of that skill sets kind of goes into like uh working with terrain you know it's all again i'll say i'll say i'll probably say it 10 times already but it's all about the flow right on um so yeah we talked about that muscles and tomahawks game and then you mentioned these days you're you're maybe doing some of your own scenarios for these event games um you're kind of coming with your own your own systems and mechanics yeah right it's happening right I, th- I think we all like to think that we're kind of, you know, game designers at heart, right? So, yeah. So, I've like uh, flipped over that that game designer leaf in my heart, and now I'm just now I just write my own rules for whatever game I'm playing. I'm getting more that way, where I'm like, oh, I totally want to do this, and I totally want to play some moon grunt. For some reason, I've been really wanting to play some games on the moon. Might have been the Expanse books. I'm not too sure. Oh what yeah. It is. But I was like, okay, right? And so I'm like, well, I'll just make my own rules. And then I'll buy all the armies and I'll paint both sides. I'll do all the terrain. I'll write my own rules. I will buy, I'll buy color-coded dice. I will make little counters. Did everything myself. And it takes a while, but I was really happy with the result. You know, As long as people are patient with you, knowing that your rules are kind of always in this state of being tinkered with, right? It was fun, though, because I do. you end up doing a lot of solo play sure. when you write your own rules, right? You'll be in the garage, you know, doing solo play, and you find yourself having a blast, and hours have gone by, and you're like, oh, this is what it's like. Okay, well, I'm having a good time. And so what I found with, uh, so with Moongrunt, um, I, 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 I wanted... I thought about the effect that I wanted. Like this is the game I want, and so I wrote the rule. I wrote the rules around the the effect in the game I wanted, and then I built the terrain, everything around this 
this desired effect. And, um, and what was kind of fun about writing these rules is, again, a six-player convention game, right? I call them convention games because it's just like you want to have six people show up and you want this game to be done in about three hours. And you want people to show up and have having no idea what they're playing. And you want them to be able to like pick up the rules pretty quick. And within, hopefully within 30 minutes to an hour, uh, you, you should be able, like the game master should be able to walk away from the table and the players can just keep on playing. I'm not going to walk away from the table, but that's the, that's sure, the result sure. you want. You want people getting what's going on quickly, right? And so you really got to have simple, easy to fall, flowing rules. And, and I'm finding myself uh, using more of like... Um, having not charts, but like having like roll on the table to see what the effect of something is in lieu of a lot of number crunching and math and memorizing or remembering things. Right. So I was doing a lot of that. What was cool about Moongrunt, what I liked about it a lot was like the, the, the first mission, first contact, uh, which I hope is going to be the first in a series of like linked story missions was kind of about like a lunar colony making first contact with it, with an alien species. And which was neat because all the players showing up, there's the first time, ideally it's the first time I played Moongrunt, but it's also the first time that their troops on the battlefield have encountered right. this enemy. It might also be the first time that the troops on the battlefield have actually seen real combat. So um, the players are learning how, the, how to play the game and the scenarios designed so it, the armies are kind of learning how they fight and learning how the enemy fights at the same time, and so it creates this kind of like multi-leveled story. And as the game goes on and more information is revealed, like this is momentum that that, that happens. That ideally, and so far every time I played it, it's happened where the it, the last turn of the game both sides are biting their nails. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh my gosh. This is so intense. Right. And, and it played off the few times I've played this with people. It's, it's worked that way. And it's been very different. Like it's been very different endings, but they've been both been kind of nail biters. And so I, I, I did it this time it worked. Right. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited and I'm already started working on a scenario to, so I kind of want to have, like, I've been thinking about kind of like this first missions, kind of a first contact kind of attack defense mission that I eventually want to have, like, we were joking about, it. I kind of want to do one in like zero G where like the figures are on magnets and they got little like air hoses hooked up to the figures and you're playing on like uh, space objects like ships or satellites that have been coated in some kind of like magnetized metal spray and we're yeah, talking yeah. About where, like the miniatures all kind Super of adhere cool. to them and so like the games kind of played in a kind of played in a 3d another thing i was thinking too this might be just really difficult was i want to i've been some of the games i'm working on with lately i've been playing a lot with actual light sources in the room where i thought it'd be fun to play a moon game where the only light you have in the room is basically like a big flood lamp that you have 
kind of almost going along this the side of the table. So it casts really hard shadows. Like on the yeah, map, sure. right? So when you're playing the game, like you, you have craters and structures that are casting hard shadows, and if you have miniatures in those shadows, you're getting you're getting like concealment bonuses. Or if you're out in the open, then you're you're kind of in the light and you can be seen easily, right? So because that's a real thing, you know, and also my research taught me like the temperature differences between the shadow and that being outside that shadow is pretty huge too. So you could kind of maybe have some fun. Yeah, with that, that's cool. You know? Very cool. So, you know, one of the things that interested me about playing when you're making your own games like this, you know, and you're, you're kind of doing the, these, these convention games, as you call them, um, you're just doing them for your, your own satisfaction of having a beautiful table and telling the story you want to with miniatures is you kind of get to go out and find all the weird miniatures and weird scales out there that, you know, you may not normally get to see. Like, um, when we played that Moongrub oh, game, yeah. um, those, the 15 millimeter astronauts you have are so freaking yeah. cool. Um, you know, it, it, do you find yourself inspired by specific weird lines? Yeah. Like, I want to make a game to use these miniatures. Does that, does that happen often? Oh yeah. 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 I, yeah, I guess like someone called me a a miniature hipster the other month, and I thought that was kind of funny because I'm always like digging trying to find the the best B miniatures out yeah. there and being like, oh yeah, these are so cool, man. They're so much cooler than your popular miniatures, right? I'm gonna do something <laughs> with these. So I I think some of that has to do with the fact that I work in the industry, so it's like you naturally kind of gravitate towards the opposite of what you do all day. You just like. So I think there's a big part in that, but you know, a lot of it, and I see, I see a lot of, this happens to a lot of folks as they kind of mature in their gaming hobby is they find themselves loving some time period or some fictional world. They love it. They have so much passion for it, but they can't find anything else to do it. Right. And it's just like, well, what you do then is you just paint up both sides and you build the train for it and you, you use made rules or you make your own rules and you just host these games for people. And then you get to be as passionate as you want to with these games. And then people are going to come and play. People will do that, right? People, there's somebody out there. that will be like, I will, I won't paint those models, but I'll come and play in your game. You know, Oh, we got a friend who loves, uh, you know, Japanese feudal, uh, the, the medieval, I don't know. It's the Japanese, it's whatever Japanese feudal system. They have like the cool back banners. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. I'm kind of destroying this right now, but anyways, we'll forget about that one. And so I'm working on the couple things I'm working on right now is, well, one fun thing I'm working on is, is my lady. She, she demanded that I paint up my, uh, my, uh, prairie schooner for thanksgiving so on my table right now i got a, i got a four mule prairie schooner that's going to decorate the table when it's awesome. she's all done but that is yeah a couple years and a couple years down the road i want to do like an oregon trail game where uh you basically have a game table it's like i don't know like 12 feet long right and it represents the start and end of the oregon trail and then everyone gets like a wagon and a family and it's like a little adventure game. Everyone's moving their wagon and family down the Oregon Trail. And then whoever makes it to the end with his many survivors kind of wins the game, right? So it'll be like the old classic video game. So there'll be a lot of people dying of dysentery <laughs> and, you know, people crossing rivers and getting attacked 
attacked by swarms of water moccasins. <laughs> so lots of fun stuff like that. So this is the, the first part in that. And uh, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been getting into it because like, uh, like the, I, for like four days in a row now, I've all of my eat, all of my meals have been cooked on the, the wood burning cast iron stove that I have going in the other room. So I'm like eating all this wonderful cast iron food and painting up prairie schooners, getting ready for the event. So that's been really fun. But uh, the other one I was working on and I worked on it so much, I pretty much just burned myself out on it. I'm taking a little break from it was, I was tr- I, and I, and I actually ran it a couple of times is uh, I'm basically doing kind of an OSR miniatures dungeon crawl game. I've seen some pictures you posted. It looks really trying cool. Trying to get that old school uh, roguelike. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get that old school just dungeon crawl feel from like the 80s where it's where it's lethal. And it's a little on the grim side, but fun. And I'm trying to do it with all miniatures, but I'm trying not to make it tactical. Like I'm, I'm not doing the whole count the squares thing. Because you know how it is when you're, when you're role playing, it's like, you're role playing, then all of a sudden the combat starts, and all of a sudden it just kind of like goes into this like tactical grid thing. And I'm trying to keep it so it's like uh, both the role play and the combat are all just kind of integrated. So there's no, there's there's not two games going on. There's one game going on. I'm trying to do a miniatures game that works that way. So it's working out. And um, I think one of the things that I really loved about it is going back to the light. Is I actually wired the figurines that actually have working torches. So you have guys with like little flicker LEDs and I put glue over like hot glue over the LEDs and kind of glazed them with red and yellow ink. So actually they're actually casting like the red yellow light that a torch gives off. And I got like little tiny circuits with batteries underneath the base. So it's all real snug and I got the wires and I kind of like, and I uh, kind of embedded them into the model and ran them down the underside and back and painted them. See, so they're really hard to detect, but got these figures that actually give off their own light. And uh, so ideally I want to play in a room with no light and then maybe I can have like, you know, some kind of like flicker lantern in the corner, but all the light in the room is being provided by, you know, the, the LED flicker torches on the miniatures and then maybe every player gets us gets their own like little flicker candle light that they can use to look at their character sheet. But I think the idea behind that is like I, I want people to experience what it's like being in a dark dungeon. Yeah. And like all the light you have is just one or two, three torches. And where you're you're actually your actual line of sight's actually hindered by what you can and can't see by those torches and so it's it's been working out pretty good you know like the few times i've ran it it's been really successful uh unfortunately finding places like when you go to some you know game club sometimes they all have like windows with poor blinds in them so it's like yeah they didn't get the experience but that's all right but that's another thing I'm working on right now. That's very cool. I just think it's interesting you're talking about, you know, putting on these sort of bespoke experience games. And I've kind of been ending up that way myself because I moved to Tacoma from downtown Seattle and I'm still a member of a wargaming club in Seattle. More and more often I play games in my house these days. And I've just been realizing, you know, I'd rather 
play, you know, the game I want to play less times a year and like really, really have an immersive experience for it. And, you know, one of the things I've decided I'm going to start doing for my, you know, in the Brush Wars, we, we do hobby pledges every year. Um, and I think my hobby pledge for 2022 is going to be that I'm only going to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get new games unless I have a set of table, unless I have a table to play it on. So I'm going to start putting, putting tables first, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things I had to do is I had to record everything, all my miniatures, all my projects, all my collections. I recorded them. Like I wrote them all out and like Google docs. Right. And, and I realized I had like 30 game collections, you know, and some of them are just still in the box and painted. Some are fully painted collections. I had to go through and I had to number them like the ones I love the most and down to the like ones I don't care too much about. And I just, I just got, I just, I just got rid of the, the bottom 10. Like I was just like, I just sold them all off, got rid of them, gave them away, whatever. And I got it down to about 20 and it's still too much. So now I'm kind of working on paring it down to 15. And then I, hopefully in a couple of years, I can pare it down to 10. So the idea is I'd rather just do a few games whole ass than have a bunch of half-assed projects laying around unfinished. Right. And this is, I'm basing all this off my own, like passion and love. Like, what do I really love? What am I really passionate about? And those are the ones I'm focusing on. And then I, I keep, I keep a tally of everything I buy. Now I keep a tally of all the things I paint. I, I, uh, I kind of plan out what I'm going to do for the next two three years. So I can keep myself almost like I'm keeping my desire in, in check and managing myself. And so one of the things that what I'm finding happen is I, I'm finding myself, you know, I, I do love the indie stuff. I do love the old, some of the older models out there. So, so, you know, so what happens is like a lot of these little indie companies, they kind of come and go, Kickstarters come and go and you miss out on them and that's all right. And sometimes you don't really pay attention to all the, the, the new hotness. I mean, I do because it's part of my job, but when it gets down to it, like I know what I love. I know what I'm passionate about. And I'm really just trying to stick with those things. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of define your relationship to the games, right? Like to figure out what it is you want to get out of gaming and then make that happen as opposed to just kind of, you know, playing the games that come along, right? Yeah. 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 I just like, I just found myself like, I, you know, sometimes I get, I get frustrated when I game, like anyone who games with me knows that like I can play a five hour game and just be happy as a clam the whole time, or I can play a, a two hour game and just immediately just be like yelling at my models sometimes, you sure. know, but there's aspects of gaming that just, they frust, frustrates me. And there's aspects of gaming that just makes me, just makes me like high as a kite. And I just totally get into the, uh, into the world and I'm trying to figure out what, kind of causes that and I'm trying to curate it. So I'm enjoying myself and now I'm curating it so I can get six other people to enjoy it too. Right. So, and I think that's, I mean, kind of like what we first started talking about, it's like, you're kind of chasing a little bit of that childhood experience. Right. I think some of that experience is just by leveling yourself up so much that you're able to like show up and have well-painted models on a really beautiful looking game board. That's, functional and interactable and um, interactive and then have a set of rules that flow nice and make sure that like 
yourself and six other players are, are around having a great time. And hopefully they'll remember it a couple years later and be like, oh, yeah, that, that game that Ron ran out, that was so much fun. I had so much fun. It was a great story, you know. So that's that's a lot of a lot of what my passion and goal is now. It's just to run those type of events for people. That's cool. I think you're succeeding because you know, like I said, I, I still think about that um, that Revolutionary War muskets and tomahawks game you ran, and that must have been three years ago now in January, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just lots of memorable moments in that. But uh... yeah, that was definitely the one I ran. Yeah, that was definitely the run, the one I ran where I was just like, I kind of realized that, like, oh, this is totally doable. Like, this is really fun, you know? Yeah, it was a great time. But what what, what, what do you plan on in the future? Do you think you've got more plans for more Moongrunt games? Anything else? Yeah, I um, definitely want to get, like, I want, I want to work on, like, Scenario 2, Moongrunt. Of course, the dungeon. You know, I've kind of burned myself out on but I'm I want to get back into that. Let's see. Um, I got some more more muskets tomahawks ideas i want to do there's some pretty famous battles i want to have i i went out on a on a hike out on the coast a couple years ago and the end of the hike ended at this native village in lighthouse and that that where the lighthouse used to be there used to be an old spanish fort and there's like old paintings there of like the spanish fort getting into battles with ships and so i kind of want to do some game where like there's a like a like a series of rock outcroppings and the last rock out, outcropping is like this little fort with cannons on it and then the other side has ships and so the ships are going to have a get into a cannon fight with the fort but the ships are also going to like have a bunch of marines and rowboats like rowing up to the shore down the down the way from the fort and so the marines will get out and they'll fight their way up to the fort so they'll be kind of like this multi-tiered ship marine beach assault with muskets game. Awesome. So I think that will be impressive. Looking, yeah. Right? What scale do you think that would be? Yeah. I think people will enjoy playing that game. Uh, 28. That will be in 28. Yeah. yeah. Most things I do now, they're like six and 15, but I still do things in 28 because 28 is so, oh, it's so beautiful looking, yeah. but it's really time, time intensive where 15 and six, it's like, you can, you can kind of do these wonderful things, but, it shaves off like you can do them in like 10 percent of the time you could if they were 28 sure. like you can paint full 15 millimeter armies like in a couple of weeks right and because the scale is smaller you can actually get more realistic weapon ranges you can have more opportunity for maneuver right and the same thing goes with six when you get down to six millimeter you can actually do like grand maneuvers and have little micro stories happening on the table and you can do more of that that uh, that generalship. And since yeah, since we're on the subject, like I kind of want to talk about a game. Um, and I'll get back to some of the things I want to do in the future. But I want to talk about a game uh, that I played in uh, in the last convention. And real briefly, and one of the things I liked about it was playing in a, at a convention where you have a game master running the game. It's kind of like a dungeon master. Like he, he's there to help with rules disputes and keep things flowing but you can play games where you can actually have like hidden setup and hidden maneuvers and hidden minefields 
and where when you're playing the game you actually use recon for actual reconning things right to try to yeah. figure out where the enemy is at or you find yourself playing a little more cautious until the situation or until you get a full understanding of the enemy's placement position and their battlefield uh, prowess and then once once you figure that out then you can start executing these maneuvers right unlike most games where it's like you set your models up your opponent sets their models up and you have like this bird's eye god view of the whole table you can do whatever you want it changes everything when you set your army up and you don't even know where the enemy's at yet and you got to figure it out before you can you know execute your maneuvers and that that just oh i love that so much it's so much fun but um anyway so future games so some of the that's okay some of the other things i want to run in the future is i want to do uh the final what i believe is the final lord of the rings battle which is the battle of baywater or is it bywater they're in the shire in the in the books mm-hmm. the battle of baywater i want to do that as a game uh and i want to do some kind of like star wars uh you know the opening scenes in the and yeah Hope. of course like I, I want to do something like that where it's like it's just like it's like it's like a naval ship uh-huh. breaching operation where you're playing inside of a starship and it's just the stormtroopers going in and it's the the whole fight's a kind of a, like a like a naval battle within a ship. It's another one I want to do someday in the future. Of course, the Oregon Trail. So many ideas. Yeah, no, I hope I can get them all done. It sounds real. It... But some of these ones I talked about earlier, like the Musk Stomhawks, the Moon Grunt. Uh, the dungeon that my dungeon crawl game, those are the ones I hope I can keep on revisiting over and over again. And maybe over enough time, I can generate enough information and get the game solidified enough that, uh, you know, maybe I can publish them one day. That That's, I guess, kind of an ultimate goal there. Cool, Rob. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. You know, um, it, it's all the stuff you've been doing with the, the GM games in particular has really been inspiring because I, I've realized that, you know, in the roots of wargaming, games were always game mastered, or often were game mastered. And I, I think we've kind of lost some of that since it's, it's fallen out of favor. And that you know, you, you, the rulebook game is your game master these days. And I, I don't know that's necessarily a great yeah. thing for every game. No, no, it's just like someone pointed out to me the other day, like the roots of miniature wargaming was kind of was very close to role playing, and so if you can play war games where you actually have a like a game master, a dungeon master, running it, you—it's almost like there's like there's like a, there's like a missing piece that you didn't know was missing yeah. for years that kind of comes back into the game. Absolutely, it's so much funner. No, that's that's really well said. Yeah, uh, this is all been something been on my mind, and you know, it's it's your games really influenced like how I've been approaching gaming, and I'm very grateful to have had those experiences, and I, I can't wait to play some more games with you. Oh, fantastic! Right on. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward as well. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll get a game in before too long. So, Ron, thanks so much, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. The Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. (laughs) 